Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. So once again, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the water, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw out, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be with you. True story this morning as we get started. Um, June 1990, an engaged couple walks in to a hotel in Connecticut. And they want, they're looking for a banquet hall to host their reception. And so excitedly they come in, they go over the table settings, they look at the food choices, they look at the dessert choices and drink choices, all the things that you would need to throw a big party for your wedding. After deciding on all the things that they want, they sit down with the event planner and they write a check for half the amount, down payment for half the total cost of renting out the banquet hall and all the things that come with the party. They leave excited for their big day. Then, about the day, the day of the, uh, when the invitations are going to be going out for all the guests, the soon-to-be groom gets cold feet, and he backs out, and he bails on the wedding. The bride-to-be, her name is Kathleen, devastated and angry, she heads straight to the hotel. She walks in, she sits down with the event planner, she explains the situation. The event planner has great empathy for the situation, and ironically, actually, she has been through something similar. And so she offers her her condolences and explains, believe it or not, actually, when I was younger, I I had a fiance that bailed on me too. And after sympathizing with Kathleen over the situation, 
she says, but listen, unfortunately, the contract is binding. And you, you're on the hook for the money. So Kathleen has two options. She can cancel the party and forfeit the money, or she can host the reception anyway. <laughs> but there'll be no wedding. There'll be no groom. What do you think she did? Here's what she did. She sat down with her maid of honor, <laughs> and after some thinking, they had an idea, and they landed on a plan. And so they didn't send out the invitations to the original guests. Instead, they sent the invitations to all the local rehabs and shelters in the area. And on a summer night in 1990, all the vagrants of the town and the addicts of the town went into the Canongate Hotel in Connecticut and ate <laughs> boneless chicken in honor of the groom. They ate fancy hors d'oeuvres and desserts, and they danced the night away. Now, I love that story. It's a real story. You can look it up. You can Google that, and it'll come up in the New York Times, I believe. What I love about that story is that woman, Kathleen, what she did is she took, she took the seeds of her sadness, and she sowed it into an act of grace. You know, she, she took her loss and turned it into the gain and a party for the undeserving. And I tell you that story, of course, because when you read the story that you just read in John chapter 2, this is very much what Jesus did. That he took the seeds of his sadness and he sowed it into an act of grace. He turned it into a party for people that didn't deserve it. And this is what Jesus has been doing all along. This has been his plan from the beginning. And it's life transforming when you get it and you get it into your bones and into your heart. Now, let me back up a little bit and explain how I got there. This guy, John, the Apostle John, who wrote that story, he loves weddings. I've noticed that about John. He loves love. The Apostle John loves love. He likes to talk about love and he likes to talk about weddings. I say that because, you know, at the beginning of this gospel, chapter 2, at the very beginning, it's the first miracle that he talks about, this, this wedding at Canaan. And, you know, he, he also wrote other books like Revelation, and, and Revelation talks about weddings a lot too, you know. He devotes the last few chapters of the book of Revelation to it, and in Revelation 19.9 he speaks of brides and weddings, and Revelation 21.2 he speaks of it, and Revelation 21.9 and 22.17, it's always about brides. Weddings, grooms, it's always about weddings. What is John's deal with weddings? Here's what I think it is. I think, it is I, think, I think it's because John felt loved all the time. And I think John, the Apostle John, felt wanted. I think he felt worthy. Um, I think he felt pursued the way you feel at weddings. I've done a lot of weddings. I've been to more weddings than you guys, trust me except for maybe Pastor Barry, who's also done a lot of weddings. I've been to a lot of weddings. And weddings, even when they're like hiccups, they're always full of love. And so I think John writes about weddings because he 
feels loved. And I think John wants, I'm pretty certain John wants you to feel loved. John wants you to experience what he experienced. And he actually writes in the first chapter of, of the Gospel of John, the prologue that we call it, he writes what he wants for you. He, he's talking about what he experienced and he says he experienced grace upon grace. Here's, let me just read it to you. From his fullness, this is John 1, 16 and 17. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So like this overflowing grace. For the law was given through Moses back in the Old Testament. Yeah, the law came through that guy, Moses, and that was important, and it served a time, but now something new is here. And Jesus Christ, he brought grace and truth. Grace upon grace, an overflow, an abundance of grace. John's experience of Jesus was the Son of God who has an overflowing kind of love and grace for you. That's what he experienced, and that's what he believed in, and that's what he wants you to believe in. And he says at the very end of his book that the whole point of his gospel, his, his biography of Jesus, he tells you at the very end what he's writing it for. And it is so that you would believe. Here it is. This is John 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, these ones that I'm writing are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote his book. Now that word signs, in that text, and it's actually the one you just read at the wedding of Cana, that word signs is unique to the Apostle John. Um, all the writers of the, the gospel, um, you know, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all write about miracles of Jesus. John is the only one that uses the word signs. He's the only one that calls them signs. Everybody else calls them miracles or works. John calls them signs. What do signs do? <laughs> Don't overthink it, right? Signs point. They guide. They direct you. They reveal things. So what these are is John, in his book, in his gospel narrative, what he's done is he's carefully selected seven signs, seven revealers of truth and grace that show that Jesus is fully divine. He's the Son of God, and they're also revealing what his character and his disposition is like. Here's what he's like, John is saying, and I want you to believe in him. Now, don't, so, so we started this series today, you know, about belief, and we're calling it believe, because this is what John wants us to do, but to believe in Jesus. Now, here's the thing about this idea of belief for you. Don't assume too much about the idea of belief. A, a deep abiding belief in John's Jesus, the Jesus that he knew, I think that that Jesus, John's Jesus, is hard for some people. A Jesus that's grace upon grace. Overflowing grace. That's John's Jesus. And that's a Jesus that's difficult for some people. See, lots of people believe in God. I, trust me, as a pastor, I have conversations with people, and it seems to me like, gosh, man, most, almost everybody I meet is a believer. But not everybody's believing in the way John believes. Not everybody believes in the Jesus that John knew. Lots of people believe in God and in Jesus, but the Jesus constructed in their minds is often this abstract, spiritualized, it's like he's a guru, or he's just the rabbi. 
He's a great teacher, really nice guy. But the Son of God come down to bear the sins of the world and love you limitlessly, just to love you and shower you with grace and not give you what you deserve. That's a, that's a difficult Jesus to believe in. And so this series that we're doing here isn't just for the skeptics, although it's for you. So if you're here this morning and you're on the fence or you're thinking about the faith or Christianity, man, I hope you dive right in. But it's also for the believers. It's also for everybody that already currently believes because, look, and this is really important when it comes to belief. Belief isn't a box that you check. Belief is something that you nurture. It's a perspective that you nurture. It's like a fire that you continually stoke. Not because salvation, by the way, is on a gradient, like it's like you can believe more so you can be more saved. No, 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 please. Don't, don't believe that. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Salvation is not on a gradient, okay? But belief is. You know, like you can dive deeper, go deeper into belief. I believe that if I eat a lot of sugar all the time, it'll kill me early. But I still eat sugar. You know what I mean? Like, I know that that's true, but I you know, struggle to believe it all the time and put it into action. And what I'm trying to get at here is that the kind of belief that John wants for us is something that we have to nurture and, and constantly move towards and think about and reflect on. Your hope, your joy, your transformation absolutely is on a gradient. There's degrees in, of maturity and things like this. I, I, I meet some Christians, and it's really clear. Their presence, like the way they talk, the way they respond to adversity, the way they respond to offense, they, they just have this presence about them that reflects the way John talks, which is this I've experienced grace upon grace. And I've experienced some church people, um, that's not their presence. It's not. They're believers. I'm not talking about their salvation. I'm just saying their presence is more like rigid, um, really worried really controlling, really judgmental, um, really turned inward because they're constantly worried and concerned about what they may not be getting. And so it's hard for them to focus on other people because they're only focused on them. That's a lot of church people. And I think if you can get and work on your beliefs that John is talking about, that can really change for you. And so here's the truth, you know, that fledgling or stale belief can lurk in anyone. I would even say pretty much it, it will happen to everyone at some point, okay? So, like, I have felt that way. I've gone through seasons. I've had seasons, man, where belief is like I'm hanging on barely. The idea that you need to nurture belief, like work on belief and think about belief, that's a human condition. Like, that's a human problem. I, I, I can actually show you. It's actually in John's gospel in the first couple chapters. A, case, a great case study is a guy named Nathaniel, who was an, a, a disciple of Jesus. And you can read about him in the first chapter. 
He's one of the disciples, and Nathanael hears about Jesus from his believing friend Philip, and Philip's like, Nathanael, you got to meet this guy, Jesus from Nazareth. I don't know why uh, Philip talks like that. Sorry, I don't (laughs) know why. So Philip says this to Nathanael. Nathanael says, do you remember what Nathanael says to him? Huh? Any, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's like somebody saying, can anything good come out of Middletown? And it's like, well, you come and see. So that's what he says to him. So Nathaniel goes to see this Jesus. And upon meeting Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he's like, oh, this guy, you, I know you, you have all this integrity. And by the way, I saw you under the fig tree. And so Nathaniel's like, how did he know that? And he becomes a believer on the spot. And Jesus is like, oh, Nathan, you think that's a big deal? Just wait. Just wait. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, which is a reference to Genesis, Jacob, the presence of God on earth, the ladder, that whole scene. Yeah, that's what Jesus is referencing. And Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, buddy, you believe, but listen, you're going to see, because because I knew things about you, but man, you're going to see so much more than that. And then John does this little clever thing, and then he's like, and then three days later, on the third day, something happened. Now, here's the thing about that scene is that all these disciples here, they're believing in Jesus. So then why after the whole water to wine scene, John writes this in verse 11, this, the first of signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Wait, so did they believe John or did they not believe? I thought they believed in chapter one. They actually call him the Messiah in chapter one. So why are they, that was a fake belief? And now this is the real belief? Or is it that you can believe to greater depths? And I think that this is John's way of reminding us that belief is about trust, and trust is something that you nurture. It's something that you can build. It's, it's a, as one writer put, it's a living, repeated, daily movement, something you can go deeper into. Okay, so you got that? All right, so now what do you believe about, what, what, what does the wedding scene at Cana, the water to wine, one of the most famous probably, what does it encourage you to believe in? What about it? You walk away and you just say, I, okay, I believe that Jesus is okay with wine. <laughs> no, something deeper than that. Here's what I think it's... Here's what I think it's encouraging you to believe. I'll just tell you the point right off the bat. I'm not going to make you like discover it over time like I do sometimes. This is, I'm just going to tell you the point. Here you go. For those with a sincere belief in Jesus, here's what I think that this scene teaches you. For those that actually really do believe in Jesus, your whole life is oriented towards a party. Your whole life is oriented and it's moving towards a banquet. Your whole life is heading towards a wedding reception. Your whole life is heading towards a party where love isn't earned. Love is just overflowing towards you by grace. That is the ending, the guaranteed ending place of your life. 
Your whole life is heading in that, whatever you think. I know what you got, you think you got plans and all that business. Friend, if you believe in Jesus, this is where you end up. At a party where the wine of grace flows. And you are being showered in love and celebrated. Now, you th- now you're like, man, I am glad I came in this Sunday morning. Consider this. And bear with me, please. Like, I know that there's nuance here, but listen. Like, you might be loved by people right now, okay? Like spouse, kids, friends, all that. And to some extent, you, very few people, rarely maybe, but it's difficult. But it's really difficult to find people that will love you completely to the bottom simply because of who you are. Now, you're like, that's not true. I have lots of people that love me just simply because. No, you don't. No, you don't. Let's be honest. We're broken. We are loved because we're handsome. Not me, but some people are. You're loved because you're pretty. You're loved because you're funny. You're loved because you're committed and you're loyal. You're loved because you don't complain. You're loved for all sorts of reasons that you do that create benefits for other people. You're not necessarily just loved because you're just you. Now, we can find some people that will love us like that over time, you know? Marriages that really dig in and fight for it and hang on and those sorts of things. You can, I'm not saying that. But no one, if I'm going to be honest with you, no one is going to love you simply, simply because of who you are to the bottom totally except for Jesus. No one. And so, that is your ending place. When it comes to Jesus, he gets absolutely no benefits from you. Please, don't be so offended by that. But he gets no, no benefit from you. He just loves you because, well, I don't know. He just loves you because he made you. His inmost being has deep affection for you. And this wedding scene is showing that Jesus' whole life, like his mind was consumed with expressing to you that that's how he feels about you. Like his whole life, it's always, he's always thinking about that. I'm going to show them how deeply I love them and that I want them to have joy and I want them to have an abundant life forever. His whole life goal is oriented around securing and expressing that. And that, this wedding scene is saying that your life ends with getting loved poured out on you like limitless wine. That's a pretty good deal. I don't drink wine. I don't have a problem with wine. But some of you do like wine, and I'm sure you love hearing that. So look, Jesus, let me show you really quick through the story. Jesus goes to this wedding. He gets invited to this wedding, and weddings were a really, really big deal. For those of you that were married and you had a big deal wedding, sorry, this, their culture beats you. Their weddings could last seven days. So back then, weddings were a very, very big deal. 
And back then, what would happen is, is you would invite essentially the entire village to come to your wedding. It would be a big, big celebration, and everybody would party. And the glue for that feast and that joy, of course, was the wine. And, well, on this particular wedding, somebody didn't do their job very well, and I'm assuming that was the groom, and they have run out of wine, right? And notice Mary doesn't ask a question, and she doesn't ask Jesus for a favor. You probably read that into it. Read it again. She doesn't ask him to do anything. She just tells him, doesn't she? She just raises the alarm bells, doesn't she? She just says, well, they have no wine. They're out. That's what she says, right? I picture Mary elbowing her son, Jesus, in the ribs saying, guess what? They're out of wine. Oopsie. You know? And Jesus response <laughs> comes off at best as confusing, right? At best. And at worst, he comes off as sharp and ill-tempered, doesn't he? She says, she just says, hey, they've got no wine. It's bad. It's going to be a crisis. You know, there's going to be some upset people. And he says, woman, woman, I'm not, listen, this is in the text. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. That's what he says. First of all, if I, if I call my wife or my mother woman, I am in trouble. Um, okay? But, but to clarify, their, their languages, their customs are different than, than ours and mine. Um, we know... We, there is mysterious wrapped up in some of this. I'll give you that. However, that being said, we can understand a little bit about what he's not doing. There, there, there's good evidence to suggest that Jesus is not being um, downright disrespectful to his mother. And I can, the reason why is because you know, uh, Mary only shows up in the Gospel of John two times. Two times in the entire of the Gospel of John. And one is here. And the other one is at the foot of the cross. It's the only two times that John writes her into the story. And at the foot of the cross, when Jesus is dying and he's taking his last breaths, he will look at her and he will say, Woman, behold your son. And he looks at John and he passes her care over to John with affection and deep care. He is not being rude when he says that to her. So it is actually a way in some context of being affectionate. And so we can kind of put that into this scene and recognize something else is going on here. Now that being said, the rest of what he says is strange and it comes off, I would say, as a non sequitur. Here's what I mean. When you read the response from Jesus, which you just did and you probably have many, many times before, you immediately start to think that what he's saying is this. Uh, she says to him, Jesus, they have no wine. And you think that he says, mom or woman, <laughs> woman, this has nothing to do with me. This is none of my business. It's not my time to start doing miracles yet. That's what you kind of think he's saying. But is that actually what he's saying? 
at careful look at this, here's the reality. When you look up this phrase, my hour or my time, depending on your translation, you look up that, those words, and there are many other references in the book of John when he uses that language, when he says, my hour, my hour, my hour. I counted it's four times <laughs> in different parts of the gospel. Every time he says, my hour, he references his death on the cross. Every time. So once you understand that, this response comes across as a non sequitur, almost completely out of context. In other words, it's like this. Mary says to Jesus, she says, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus' response, Mom, this isn't any of my business. It's not my time to die yet. Now Mary... I'm sure is like, what is going on in his head right now? You ever talk to somebody and you think they're listening and they are listening, but then their response is like, whoa, what are you carrying around? This is one of those moments. It's like, wait, how does this fit? It's not my time to die. Why, why is Jesus thinking about his death at a wedding? Well, and you probably are connecting the dots but already, but because his death, the de his death would be the price for his wedding. And so that's what he's doing. I, I, I heard a, a pastor once say like this, Jesus, in a sense, that Jesus is doing the same thing at this wedding that a lot of single people sometimes do at weddings. You know what I'm talking about? Like, when you're single and you're at a wedding, you're not always thinking about the bride and the groom, are you? If you're single and you want to be married, you're not thinking about the bride and the groom. You're thinking about you. You're thinking about how much you want to be married. You're thinking about your future wedding day. You're looking up at them and you're thinking, oh, I'm definitely not going to wear a dress like that. <laughs> you know? or I'm gonna do very different decorations. These are the things you're thinking about. You're thinking about your future wedding. That's, it's natural. I'm, you're daydreaming, essentially, about your future wedding. I, I think it's fair to say that Jesus at this wedding is thinking about his wedding. That's what he's doing. He's filling up his imagination with his own. But, but to think about his wedding means thinking about his blood. It requires that. It's thinking about how his blood would be poured out, if you will, as a bride price. Like that's what he has to do. He has to pay for his bride. He has to buy her back from darkness. He has to buy her back from the bondage of death and sin so that he can marry her. And Jesus, of course, knew that wine would be the sign of that price to reconcile you, to clean you, to purify you, and make you worthy of the relationship. Jesus, being Jesus, lets his heavy burden be translated into an overflowing wine of grace for these people. Again, Jesus, in that moment, in his imagination, is filled up 
with sadness because of what he's got to do, which is not only just die, but be abandoned by the Father to win his bride. And he's filling up his mind with all of that. He's full of the burden and the tension and the sadness of that. And he takes that seed of sadness and he sows it into a random act of grace just because that's who he is. And it's an expression of how he always is towards his people. Jesus lets his first miracle be wine at a wedding as an expression of what his whole life is oriented towards. And so when you think about Jesus, what, did, what do you think? And here's what I would just encourage you to think, and that's what this first miracle wants you to think, and that is this. When you think of Jesus, I want you to think of him as someone who is handing you a cup of wine, saying, I love you, welcome to the party. Jesus' whole life mission wasn't to bring you lectures, as maybe you were taught. Jesus' whole life mission wasn't to bring a list of lectures or rules. It was to bring you a wedding and a party with him forever. And this is why later John will write, and this is Revelation 19.9, and the angel said to me, quote, write this down, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's not blessed are those that really did their homework and listened to all the lectures and memorized all the important parts. It's blessed are those that are invited to the party. If you bank your life on Jesus, your life ends at a marriage banquet with him where the wine never runs out. Man, when I was younger, how much I wish I knew that. Have you... Can you imagine in your mind right now your 12-year-old self or 15-year-old self? What would you whisper into that person's ear? You're like, so many things. Yeah, so many things. My favorite questions. What would you whisper into the younger self of you? My fa I love to ask people that question and to hear their answers if they're willing to give me their answers. You know what I would, one of the things I would whisper among many things? If I could go back to my younger self, one of the things that I would whisper in my younger self ear is this. I, 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 I would be thinking about this. Hey, you are not missing out if you dive into this. See, when I was younger, I, when I thought of Christianity, when I thought of Jesus, I knew of things like sacrifice and I knew of things like service. You got to... You gotta serve and you, you, you can't be selfish anymore. You gotta, you gotta love other people and you gotta do things for other people and there's a whole lot of like saying no and a lot of that and you just gotta be a good boy. And, and, and I filled my mind with that kind of an idea. And so I, I, I thought of the Christian life as a life of sacrifice and therefore it was a life of great purpose but not a life of great fun. And so it was my younger self's version of Christianity was like, like, it wasn't like Psalm 16 where it talks about how at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, right? I was like, I don't get that psalm at all. And I just wish that I could go back and whisper into my younger ear. I wish I could go back and just say, stepping into this does not mean missing out. It is the opposite. Jesus is the life of the party, is he going to ask you to sacrifice? Is he going to ask you to serve? 100%, yep. What makes you think that that's not going to be fulfilling for you? I wish I could go back 
and say to myself, dude, you are not gonna miss out on a lot of fun. Dive in all the way. Now, as we wrap up, let me just give you a few practicals as if this was true for you. Like if you believed in this way that I'm talking about, that my life, no matter what, is ending at a party. Like it will end in a great banquet. If, my, if you knew that your life was headed towards a place of unconditional love and joy forever, your, your, your life is headed towards inseparable joyful love in Christ and with others, how would that change your perspective now? Now, I would encourage you to just reflect on that and think upon that, but I'll just give a few as we wrap up. One, I would say this. Trust Jesus. Trust him. Trust his timing and trust him even in your troubles. Trust him. Even when it's confusing. Mary gets no answer from Jesus. Nothing clear. It's not the son of my business. It's not my hour. And what does she do? She walks away and goes straight to the servants and she says, do whatever he says. It's such an act, such a perfect snippet of what the Christian life should look like. She has zero idea of when, what, or how he's going to do it. What she knows is he's good. That's all she knows. She's had a whole life of raising him. Does she fully comprehend who Jesus is? I mean, she's got ideas. She was told things from day one, but I don't think she has a full grasp of it, but she knows he's good. And so she knows whatever he's going to do. Trust me, it'll be really good, so just do what he says. Now, friend, some of you have things in your life because you are a human being like me. We struggle. We have losses. We get stuck. We have confusions. These sorts of things hit us. Trust his timing. Don't focus yourself on what you're not getting Focus yourself on him and the fact that he loses everything to get you. Everything to get you. And if you only think about your losses, you will not live the abundant life that he has for you. Trust his timing. Trust him even when it's troubling for you. You're stuck in a marriage situation, a singleness situation, a job situation, a money situation, a kid situation, a friend situation. These trials, these losses are not the direction and ending place of your life. They're just stops along the way. And they're there to teach you something. Mary doesn't know when. She just knows that Jesus will act, and so she trusts him. Two, don't just trust Jesus in the, in the weird timing and troubles of your life. Trust Jesus that he can make miracles happen in the margins. And I love this about him. But, you know, in verse 11, it says that he manifested his glory at this wedding. Jesus pulled back the curtain of his glory in this backcountry town of Galilee. At whose wedding, by the way? Whose wedding was this? It's never mentioned. They're so insignificant, they're not even named. Jesus performs his first miracle at someone's wedding that we don't even know who it is. And it's not in Jerusalem. It's in a backcountry town. It's not the place I would have my first miracle. I would do it at a big rally. Somewhere would be a lot, you'd get a lot more attention, but not Jesus. No one is famous here. 
Nothing is prominent about the place or the people. He just reveals his glory. So don't ever think that your life is too small or insignificant or too petty. Don't think your problems or your trials are too insignificant or small for Jesus to pay attention to them. It is his favorite place to do his miracles in the ordinary, insignificant places and spaces of life. Last thing is this. Trust scandalous grace, scandalous grace over the comforts of the law every time. Now you're like, might be thinking, ah, ah, I don't know about that. This is what this story wants to tell you. Trust scandalous grace over the comforts of the law, both for yourself and for other people. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars made for Jewish purification. He's like, you see those jars? Fill those up with water to the brim. Now, the Jewish law required all sorts of washing. Maybe you're familiar with that. From Old Testament law, from the law given through Moses, these Jews were supposed to do all sorts of hand washing and feet washing and all sorts of other different things to make sure that they were clean before they did anything. Now, the idea wasn't that the water could actually clean the insides. It was symbolic more than anything. It was, it was ceremonial. It was meant to express that we are sinful. We are unclean. God is clean. We cannot come into his presence and do the things that he wants us to do unless we have been cleansed. And so this water represents that. And what Jesus does is he fills that whole old system, that whole old Jewish system with the wine of grace. It is so clever of Jesus what Jesus is expressing in that moment is he's saying, hey, this whole system, this served for a time and a place for a while, and it was good, but it's done now. I've brought something new, and it's just grace. The whole Jewish system is done. And so in Christ, you're not under that old law. You're under this thing called grace now, and that's really difficult for people. It sounds great, but it's difficult. I can tell you from experience that old habits die hard and every true believer I have ever met will struggle to run, to not run back into those old ways of trying to earn your way. You know, you know you come into Christianity, hopefully you know you come into Christianity, you come into a life of, of being in this relationship with Jesus and you know you get there by grace and over time you start to smuggle back in the law. You love to smuggle it back in, you hide it in your pockets I just want to bring a little rule following with me. It makes me feel a little bit safer. Right? That's what you do. Don't rely on the comforts of that. Throw yourself wholly and completely on grace. That means we confess our sins and we just, that's the direction that we stay. It's so hard to shed yourself of that old way of thinking that somehow, yeah, but just to be really safe, I need to earn it. No, you don't. You can't. And so in the same way, notice that the groom of this story gets all the credit for the good wine. Jesus gets no credit. Well, friend, that's symbolic for your Christian life. You get all, all the righteousness that you didn't earn. Christ credits you his righteousness on the cross. He takes your sin and credits you his perfect record. And he walks away and gets no credit. You get all the credit. That's how the faith of, of Christianity works. Jesus will have it no other way. And so it is no surprise, it's not surprising that at the end of Jesus' life, 
that he used bread and he used wine to celebrate his death, to celebrate his love, and to celebrate his presence among us. And so this bread represents Christ's body that is broken for us to purchase us. This cup of wine represents his blood shed, again, to buy his bride. You are called the bride of Christ. One day he will return and he will celebrate with a big, big feast. And so take a moment to confess your sins, confess whatever you're struggling or feeling, be honest about that before the Lord, and come forward if you're a believer to take part, this station or this station, taking a piece of the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice, whichever you prefer. All you're doing is celebrating and giving thanks for the fact that you can't earn it. He's given it freely. If you're not a believer, I, I would encourage you to come forward. I would encourage you to pray. I would encourage you to write down your questions. Come talk to us. Believer or not, wherever you're at, if you need prayer, we'll be in the prayer room off to the side, as always, to pray with you. Let's bow our heads together. Father, your word says that you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I confess that sometimes I struggle to believe that because life is difficult, it is confusing, we have horrible setbacks, we get sick, we have losses, we have conflicts. And we get so fixated on them, it is hard for us to think about the joy that you're bringing us. But there is such wonderful news in this story, and that is that you are going to give us grace upon grace if we just stay right here, focused on you, thinking about your work. I hope and pray that I can believe in that this morning afresh, as well as everyone else here. It's in Jesus' name that we always pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.